Good evening, folks. It's really good to be here. I'm just eager for this opportunity to talk about baptism and in particular to specifically zero in a little bit to help parents think about the appropriate age and how to prepare their children for baptism. And you might think, well, you know, I'm sort of past that stage in life or I'm single or I don't have kids. Well, what I want to press upon us tonight is that this is not just something that an individual family needs to wrestle with. Uh, the argument that I'm going to make tonight, I think, hopefully, is that baptism is a church's, a whole church's membership unified action. And so I want to give us a kind of robust understanding of baptism and then drill down into helping parents think about baptism of children, do a little Q&A, and then if we have time, Lord willing, we will pray and sing another hymn. So I hope you got a outline. Uh, there's some extensive notes. We're going to kind of go through these pretty quickly. And so I'm just going to dive right in. I've got three headings. I'm going to talk about a definition of baptism. We're going to talk about children and baptism. At what age should a child be baptized? And then thirdly, a process to help parents discern the readiness and prepare children for baptism. So first, a definition of baptism. And I'm quoting verbatim from a little book called On Baptism, written by uh, a young pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, Bobby Jameson. I know him personally. He is a good guy, a, a very, very sharp young theologian in the church and pastor, and he has written very helpfully on baptism. And this is what he says in a little book. He, I think, helpfully de uh, defines baptism in this way. Now, if I were preaching a sermon, I would not necessarily define baptism in this way because it's a little wordy. But I'm going to use Bobby Jameson's definition for our purposes and then break it down to help us understand, I think, things that we sometimes might miss when we're thinking about baptism in the context of the local church, which is its context. Okay, so let me read. This is a quote directly from Jameson's book. Baptism is a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. And we're going to work through that kind of piece by piece pretty quickly. Okay, so first, I've just taken the phrases, and we're going to augment those phrases, and we're going to hope to uh, validate them and prove them from Scripture. So baptism is a church's act. Now, I think one of the things that exists in many churches, predominantly in kind of our stream, our sphere, like your average sort of Baptist church, maybe in the South, I think has wrongly and overly personalized baptism as something that an individual does. It's an individual experience, and certainly it is, but I think on a more biblical level, it is an ecclesiastical, it's a function of the church. So it's a church act. Let me just kind of give you a little background for that. Uh, Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 is this famous passage where he's talking to the disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right, Simon. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says in Matthew 16, verse 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he says something in verses 19 that is really interesting. And I think he's going to, I think Jesus is building a picture of the church 
that I think is going to be clarified for us at the end of Matthew in the Great Commission when he talks about baptism. But so far at this point, we're still at verse 19, and Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, what does that mean? He's giving Peter metaphorical keys to the kingdom of heaven, and he's telling him whatever you lock is locked on earth, and whatever you open is opened on earth. Okay, that's what's going on there. Well, let's go two chapters over to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, and I think we get a little bit more clarity about what Jesus is talking about. The keys, these metaphorical keys of the kingdom that he's given Peter, are now disseminated to the whole church. And he says in Matthew chapter 18, and I won't read the first few verses, but it's this famous passage where Jesus is talking about dealing with sin in the church. And he says, if there's a sin between you and a brother, go and tell him. If he refuses, take two or three witnesses. Go and try and get him to repent. And if he refuses, then Jesus says to tell it to the church, ecclesia, those that are called out, this group, this local assembly. So implicit in Jesus' instruction in Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to read in a second, is this idea of the local church. Because when Jesus says, tell it to the church, he clearly doesn't mean the universal church, all Christians everywhere, because that would be impossible. He's talking about the expression of the local church. And so he's tell it to the church. And so there's this sin. It needs to be weeded out. The church needs to maintain its, its, its testimony. And he says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, so what Jesus is saying is then put this person out of the church. There was something to be brought into this church. They were in it by their profession of faith, and now because they are not living in accord with their profession of faith, and there's no repentance, I mean, all of us sin to varying degrees all the time, but because there's persistent public rebellion and unrepentance, put this person out of the church. And of course, regrettably, we've had to do that several times in the life of our church in the context of a member meeting. And then he says, now tying it together what he said to Peter, he said, again, I say to you, verse 19, if, or verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this locking and unlocking function that he gave Peter back in Matthew chapter 16, he now gives to the church, right? It's everybody, it's the local church's responsibility. What does that mean? I think it means it's not... It's not what some faith prosperity gospel preachers on TV say. In fact, there's a famous prosperity preacher. His name is T.D. Jakes, and he mangled this verse, and he actually wrote a book on it called Woman, Thou Art Loosed, and he's talking about we can speak like freedom to things, like loose things in the spiritual realm. That's not what this verse is talking about. What Jesus is saying is there is a kind of earthly, visible authority that the local church has to let people into the earthly establishment of the kingdom of God, which is the local church. There is a kind of butler-like, door-keeping responsibility that the local church has 
to validate and confirm a person's confession of faith as a representation to the world. It is not to say that that is done perfectly and that everybody that's a member of the local church is truly regenerate because we know that there will be sheep and goats mixed together on the last day. There will always be tares with the wheat. We know that. But as best as we can, we are to be be discerning doorkeepers. We have a responsibility to validate one another's testimony and validate the confession of faith so that people that are professing faith are at least giving some evidence that they are living for that faith, and that is we allow them to enter the church. We open the door of the church to them, and if they ever walk in rebellion against that profession of faith, we lock the door to them and put them out of the church, metaphorically speaking. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that the church determines who's Christians and who goes to heaven. Only the Lord does that. But in a visible sense, that's a very real responsibility. That's why church membership is so important. And, and, and I think we know that argument. Now then, let's go to Matthew chapter 28, because we haven't even mentioned the word baptism yet. And let's, we, I think then Jesus, I think implicit in this is then how does baptism function? How do we know who's in and out? And I think that's what baptism ultimately is for. Jesus in the Great Commission says, and Jesus came and said to them, Matthew 28, 18, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So I think implicit in this, and we're going to see this a little bit as we work through, is that this is the way that the church publicly ratifies, verifies, validates the confession of somebody that they bring in. This is the church. It's a church's act saying this person is in Christ. And what does it mean to be in Christ? Certainly to be believing in him personally, to have your sins washed, to be reborn, born again, but also to be grafted in, united to the body. Okay? So it's a church's act, letter B, of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ. And so this is, I think these two verses are the primary reasons why I am a convictional credo-baptist, meaning that I believe that baptism should only be administered to those who have credible profession or belief. Credo meaning believers, Latin word meaning belief. So believers' baptism. These two verses are the primary New Testament verses that I think, for my mind, seal the deal on who should be baptized and that only believers should be baptized because Paul ties baptism with the new birth in both of these verses. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in, by baptism into death? in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. So think about what baptism, think about the symbol of baptism. You go down into the waters and you die under the water. In fact, in the Old Testament, oftentimes, baptism, most prominently, obviously, in the flood in Genesis chapter 6, water is seen as a symbol of of God's judgment, water brings death when we are submerged under it. And here in baptism, we are in Christ who goes to the cross. He 
takes the wrath of God, the floodwaters of God's wrath on the cross, and he dies for us. And then he rises again in victory over the floodwaters of he, he absorbs, he dries the floodwaters of wrath for us, and he rises again in the newness of life. And Paul is saying that you are in him by faith, you're in him, so then metaphorically, we're in Christ, the benefits of his death, of him taking the wrath, the floodwaters of God's judgment, we are in Christ, we receive that benefit and the rising again in new life, we receive that benefit. And so Paul is saying that what is happening in your salvation experience, in your rebirth, you die to yourself, you in Christ and you rise in the newness of life, is exactly what baptism is portraying, okay? And that obviously is something that only somebody that is believing, a believer, only appropriates that new birth by faith. And so that sign is signifying not the hope of the possibility of God acting in that way, as much as we want that to happen, but that it has actually happened in the life of a believer, thereby validating this person is part of the new covenant. I think we see that uh, spoken of again in Colossians chapter 2. Verses 11 and 12, in him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And so sometimes our brothers and sisters that would believe in infant baptism uh, want to, I think, draw a straight line from the Old Testament uh, 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 rite of circumcision with baptism in the New Testament. And although there is a connection, I think what Paul here does is to say that there is some similarity, but there is difference. The circumcision that Paul has in mind here in Colossians chapter 2 is not a physical circumcision of the old covenant, but the new circumcision of the heart, of the spirit, of the new covenant. So he says, in him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, the cutting away of Christ, not Jesus's as an eight-day-old infant, not by his literal circumcision, but by the, by the cutting of Christ on the cross, you, your body of sin has been put off. It died with Christ in his death, having been buried with him in baptism. Here's the key phrase, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so for me, Colossians chapter 2 entrenches me in the believer's baptism position because it is through faith that somebody is able to be raised with Christ, buried with him in baptism, raised with him in Christ. And so then, summarizing this, baptism is, is a church saying, we are affirming that this person is in fact a Christian, and that's what baptism is a sign to point towards primarily. It is a sign and a symbol of the new birth. Think of it this way. Here's a couple analogies. None of them are perfect, but I just think they're helpful. Like a wedding ring, okay? This ring I wear on my finger announces to the world that I am married to Jennifer. This isn't, this isn't the thing that made me married. It just announces to the world that I'm married to her. 
Same thing with a passport. Okay, I was, I am a, an American citizen because I was born in America. Barely, but I was born in America. <laughs> I almost missed it by about two miles. But I was born in America, okay? That's what makes me a, a citizen. My passport, though, announces to the nations of the world my citizenship. It doesn't make me a citizen. It merely announces. It's a symbol of my citizenship. Think of another analogy, a team jersey. It doesn't make me on the team. It just portrays, it identifies me to the other teams that I'm on this team. That's similarly, and again, no analogy is perfect. That's the way baptism functions. It doesn't make you a Christian. It just announces, it's God's marker in the new covenant of who the church is, okay? That's really, really important. I want to, I want to, I want to, as much as I want to, I want to, um, I want to bolster and I want to glory in the beauty of the doctrine of baptism. I want to say that it does not save. It is not the gospel. It's just the announcement of the gospel's work in a person's life. The thief on the cross, Jesus said today, boy, if we could just have you get you baptized, you could be with me. That's not what he says. Jesus says to the thief on the cross who was not baptized after he believed, what does he say? Today you will be with me in paradise, okay? But the normal progression for the Christian life in the new covenant is this baptism, okay? So a, a baptism of church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ, let her see by normally, and I'm inserting the word normally there, immersing him or her in water. So in the New Testament, uh, I think just about every time that the word baptism is used to describe somebody's baptism, it comes from a Greek word, baptizo, which most prominently, most normally means to dip, to plunge, or typically complete submersion. Uh, I think that's the, that is clearly the way we would practice baptism. Uh, we would exercise some generosity. Uh, I don't, I think people get really, uh, they really get wrapped around the axle about the mode of baptism, and I think the mode is important. And I think why immersion is important is not because, because some people quibble about the usage of the Greek word baptizo and how sometimes it doesn't mean full immersion in the New Testament, and sometimes it means just a washing of hands, and I grant that. But the reason why I think full immersion is the best and most normal practice for the New Testament and the believer's hints like us is not because of some exactness of the Greek word and its definitions, but because immersion most clearly portrays what baptism is signifying is the total submersion under the water of a person in death in Christ and the total rising up out of the water uh, in, in newness of life. But um, we, have, we have come to the uh, conviction that that's how we're going to baptize here, uh, but we would accept the sprinkling of a, of a, belie a believer's baptism by the mode of, a, of sprinkling, and we would accept that uh, here as a, maybe an abnormal um, or not an ideal, but a valid baptism for a believer. So by normally immersing him or her in water, and a, so that's the church, and now it switches to the personal, and a believer's act. It's a believer's act. It's something that a person does. Now, it's not that we are doing anything for our salvation. It's just that the purpose of the sign of baptism 
is not just a church affirming the person, but a person's public profession of faith. So if a believer's act, 1 Peter 3, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, meaning the flood. That's just the analogy I just made. Verse 20 of 1 Peter 3, this is what he says. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lots of people get tripped up by how he says baptism saves you. Even some, I think, heretical denominations have been formed from this verse. Uh, Peter, in balance with what the rest of the New Testament says, we have to let the Bible interpret the Bible with difficult, difficult verses like this. Oftentimes, the New Testament will use baptism as kind of shorthand to describe the whole salvation experience. And what I think Peter is saying here is that what is saving you is not the act of baptism, but the faith that God has given you that justifies you that is implicit in your appeal to God for a good conscience. And so it is, it is affirming, it's the church affirming a believer's union with Christ by immersion in water, and it's the action of a believer, their public faith in Christ which then follows into letter E of publicly committing him or herself to Christ. So it's the believer saying, it's not just the church saying, it's the believer saying back to the church and to the world, I am in Christ. He is my Lord. Now, Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33 does not implicitly mention baptism, but I think baptism functions in effect, accomplishes exactly what Jesus is saying here. A famous verse, Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And as we progress through the New Testament in the Acts and in the epistles, it it, it seems clear that baptism functions as that obvious way of publicly committing yourself, acknowledging the Lord before uh, the world. So publicly committing himself and herself to Christ and his people. So we're not just saying that we are, baptism again is not an individual event where we're just saying I'm personally a Christian, I'm with Jesus now, but to be with Jesus is to also be with his bride and that is expressed in the local church. People, you say famously, you know, how can you say that you love Jesus and hate his bride? How can you say that you love me but you hate Jennifer? How can you say that you love Jennifer but hate me? We are one. And in the same way, Jesus is one with his bride. And so baptism is a connection. It's a public commitment. That's why I think church membership and baptism are so united together. That's why we would be very reticent unless it was an unusual circumstance. Like maybe, you know, somebody was in the military and they were getting stationed or somebody was a foreign student here and they were, you know, they came and became a believer here and then they were going back to their country where there wasn't a church that they could really join. We would be, unless it was some strange situation like that, we would be very reticent to baptize somebody here without it being tied to a connection to membership in this local church or some other local church. But if we're going to baptize them, it would think make most sense to be this local church because it's not just a personal commitment to Jesus, but also to the church. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, when there was all of these baptisms, it says that they were added. Peter gets up and he says, repent and be baptized all of you in the name of the Lord Jesus, and thousands were added to their number on that day. 
And then in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, it says that we're baptized into the body. And of course, what, what are we baptized into? Well, in a sense, we are baptized into the universal church. We're now connected. We're part of this mysterious, invisible, grand, universal body of Christ. But the way that is actually lived out is through the local church. So we are baptized into the universal church as expressed in the local church. And thereby it unites a believer to the church visibly and marks him or her off from the world. So I think that is a good definition of baptism. It's a, it's a church and individual kind of uh, uh, mutual act where the church is saying, yes, this one belongs to Christ. And what it means to belong to Christ is going to be lived out in connection with this portion, this particular expression of the body of Christ, this local church. And then it's the person saying, yes, I'm trusting in Christ. And they're saying that I'm connected to Christ, and that's visibly marked off by me connecting to this local church and me uh, marking myself off with this group of people so that the world can see who the church is. So baptism is not just a personal act. It's, it's really an evangelistic tool in, in God's design to mark off, to, to mark His people, to brand His people, as it were, so that everybody knows that they were, are His sheep. Okay, let's then look at children and baptism on the back there. Children and baptism. At what age should a child be Baptized. That's the question, okay? So if this is what baptism is, I hope you agree. The question then becomes, for Baptistic churches like us or credo-baptists, then at what age should a child be baptized? Because what, what the, the, the issue at hand is, is that uh, clearly we believe that uh, a person can come to saving faith at a young age. But here's the challenge, Okay. I want, you to, I want you to understand this sort of, because baptism is part of your responsibility as a local church too. It's all of our responsibility. We're collectively issuing a passport. When a younger child comes to faith, it can be at times quite difficult to discern the validity of that child's faith. And there are pitfalls on either side of doing it too soon or waiting too long. So there are two historic credo-baptist perspectives on this. One is withholding baptism until the late teen years, historically even really into the, 18, the age of 18 or even the early 20s, or the position of immediate participation. So think a child as young as six or seven that just in a very rudimentary, you know, childlike way expresses faith in Jesus without a whole lot of examination, just kind of pretty quickly um, baptizing that child. Um, what are pros and cons to each of those positions? Well, uh, I will say that the withholding position has been the majority position of most credo-baptist churches up until about a hundred so or so years ago. And I think, this is just my sort of um, layperson historical perspective, is that part of the American 
culture, part of the pragmatism of American culture, part of the church growth movement in American church culture that really took hold in the early 1900s into the mid-1900s, I think put a lot of pressure on church growth and um, I think pushed the baptism age much, much lower, okay? And so the historic position for churches like us, say 100 years ago and previous, was mostly withholding baptism until the late teens or certainly into adulthood. The pros of that position is that um, it really mitigates against um, bringing a young child into the, to the membership of the church through baptism only to find out that that was just a, a, a child just sort of saying that they wanted to be baptized, not really understanding, and then falling away and really proving themselves never to be Christian, which really kind of mucks up things for the church. Do you understand how that just kind of clouds the witness of the gospel in that church? So that's, that's the, the, the pro, the, 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 the good part of the withholding position is it helps to fight against that. The, the con, the negative to that, is it can become a bit overscrupulous. And it can unwittingly, in its protection of guarding the validity of baptism and what it means, it can produce a kind of um, almost a sort of legalism and discouragement in the life of a young believer to the point where they never really feel like they are mature enough for baptism or there's just kind of this really um, almost, almost just heavy-handed too much to, to where baptism almost becomes less of a sign of the new birth, but more of a sign of a particular stage of sanctification. And that's when, that's when withholding at its worst. Does that make sense? So you see kind of the two um, pitfalls, or the, the, the strengths of it and the weaknesses of it. Now, the, weakness, the strengths and weaknesses of immediate participation, in other words, baptizing children at very, very young ages, well... Uh, the weaknesses of it, I think, are, are kind of obvious. Just sort of indiscriminately, you're baptizing children without a whole lot of examination that may just be sort of saying they want to be baptized because their parents have brought it up or because they saw a baptism or they think it's something they should do or they want to please their parents, which is a good thing. And, they, and we kind of, the church kind of interrupts that process of maturation and growth and sort of slaps a Christian label on a child who's maybe just growing up but hasn't really come to faith yet. And then later on we find out that as that child grows that they never really knew the Lord. And then we got kind of a, a, a baptized, unregenerate person which just really misapplies the sign of baptism. It sort of undermines, it guts it, the, the whole purpose of baptism. That's the real negative of that. The positive of it, and I, and I, I, think, I, I think I'm a little hard-pressed to find the positive of it, is that um, it, it just sort of, uh, it, it believes, it's kind of optimistically believing in uh, just the sincerity of a young person's faith. It encourages, we just see, let's just, okay, let's bring these children into the church through baptism and membership and, and let's, um, let's, let's do a really good job of robustly bringing them up in the Lord. And I think there's some benefit to that. What's Crosspoint stance? Where have we been? Where have we been? Let her be there. Well, we have been not really putting an age on it. We've probably tended more towards the withholding side, and I think probably too much. I think we've been a little overly cautious, 
And we are wanting to move a little bit more into a mediating position between the withholding, kind of waiting till somebody's in their late teens, or the immediate participation, think like a child being baptized at six or seven. And we as elders are open. We're reticent to put a particular age because um, that seems sort of artificial and every family and every child is different. We think that generally it seems wise for a child to sort of experience puberty kind of around that time because at puberty you're, you're sort of having to wrestle for the first time with the world, the flesh, and the devil and your own sort of innate desires that sort of take some fruition in a child's heart. We think there's wisdom in that. Uh, but we're reticent to put a, an age. So, you know, we're open to, to talking about baptism with a child that's, you know, uh, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that realm, or possibly even a little younger. Uh, but we, we, we want to leave it open towards the circumstance and the context of the family and the maturity of the child. So uh, what does that mean? Well, we're going to talk about w- what that means for parents here at Crosspoint. But a few, a few follow-on issues um, before we get into that, then what does it look like if you have a child that is expressing interest in baptism and professing faith in Jesus? Well, before we get into that, then what about children and communion? Because I haven't talked about communion, but communion really is connected to baptism. Uh, communion and baptism go together as the two signs, the two ordinances of the church, and they're not just traditions. They have a particular function in the church. They're wanting to mark the church off. Think of baptism as like the entry, the initiating rite, and the Lord's Supper as the continuing rite. So think of an analogy. Again, no analogy is perfect, but think of baptism as like the visible door to the church and the table as the visible family meal of the church. So, historically, historically, baptism has preceded or should precede communion. So, there are some churches that go so far as to not allow um, unbaptized people or children to receive communion. They're not saying that if you're not baptized, you're not a Christian. They're just they're wanting to give a kind of order to the ordinances because it makes a kind of sense. In fact, Spurgeon and his church would actually they would actually hand out tickets, tickets to communion, and those tickets. Part of it was being a church member and being baptized. Now, uh, here's where I personally stand on that, and I I think that's wise. I think that's I think that's implied in the text. Um, I'm a little bit reticent to see it as a hard and fast rule because there is no chapter and verse where I can really say this, you know, unbaptized people should not receive communion. That seems to be the general order, but I don't think you're going to get zapped or you're sinning if you haven't had a chance to get baptized yet, but you're believing in Jesus. I'm a little reticent to withhold the table from somebody. I just think that the general order should be baptism and communion, and there shouldn't be a long gap between baptism and communion. And I would recommend to parents that a child be baptized before they, uh, they receive communion. And, and I have not led well in that personally and as the church, and so I'm sort of admitting that now. But that, that seems to be the function of the two ordinances in the life 
of the church. So finally, quickly, and then I want to open up to questions, a process to help parents discern the readiness and progress. So where are we now? Okay. Okay. All right. It seems like Crosspoint's moving a little bit more towards the middle on this, openness to baptize younger children than maybe they have previously. What does that mean, okay, if you're a parent here? Well, we think that parents, we would encourage you to talk about the gospel and baptism with your children regularly and about the importance of baptism. Bring that up. Don't, don't artificially bring it up. But in the flow and under the leading of the Spirit, if that comes up, if your ch- child is expressing faith and trust in Christ, it's appropriate for you to discuss uh, that, that profession of faith and what should come next, which would be baptism. Then that leads us to the next step, letter B. If you feel your child is ready, if you, I, I missed a word there, not if you, feel, if you feel your child is ready, talk to one of the pastors. And we, and we have come across an excellent, excellent, excellent guide uh, it's called Established in the Faith, a Discipleship Guide for Discerning and Affirming a Young Person's Faith. It is by this organization called Truth78. It's formerly the organization called Children Desiring God out of John Piper's church in Minneapolis. And this is a pamphlet written for parents to actually sit down with their children over several weeks and work through what it means, what the gospel is, what it means to be converted, and what baptism is, and preparing a testimony, and through it is a guide to help parents discern the readiness and the maturity of that child for baptism. And so if you feel your child is ready, talk to one of the pastors. We're going to order a bunch of these just to have these on hand, and we will give you one of these guys and encourage you as the parent, as the primary discipler of your child, to you go through this with them first and discuss it with your child. And if you take your time, letter C, to walk through this with your child, and then if letter D, if you feel the child is ready, Schedule a meeting to discuss your child's testimony with you and your child to discuss your child's testimony and preparedness for baptism with one of the elders, where we would sit down after that process of the parent talking with with the child, going through this wonderful little discipleship guide written for children, for parents to guide them through, and then schedule a meeting if you feel like the next step is, 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 is they're ready for it, where they would sit down with a pastor and talk about their testimony. But I would just say, letter, letter E there, be prepared for encouragement, but also for possible postponement. Because you have to remember that it is the whole churches and part of the burden of, of being elders of the church is that we are at least the gatekeepers for this right, and we don't want to just under social pressure, just merely to encourage a child in that moment, um, just sort of say, okay, even if we, we want to be prepared for the possibility of an, certainly encouragement to the child, but hey, this is wonderful, we're so glad for what the Lord is doing in your life, but let's wait a little while if we can't really discern uh, the validity of a ch- child's spiritual maturity and understanding of the gospel and preparedness for baptism. Now, that's not a perfect process, but it's certainly better than the process which we've had before, which was pretty much non-existent. So um, that's, that's, um, that's what we want to do. So if you're a parent and you've got a child kind of approaching that, that, those ages, expressing faith in the gospel, you think they might be ready for baptism, talk to one of the pastors, we'll get you one of this, and we will go from there. Okay, questions. Questions? You got to get up and go to a mic if you got any questions. This isn't. Oh, hey, Robert. This is hey, Brad. Robert Ward. Mm-hmm. Uh, this isn't really a question, 
she said it kind of quick, and I just wanted to make sure um, we were clear about what you what you were saying. I know what you were saying. Uh, <laughs> you said sprinkling of like of somebody, yep. like the sprinkling baptism mm -hmm. of somebody, mm -hmm. is a regular, but that it would be acceptable or valid. What what you mean though, just to be clear for everybody, is you're talking about the sprinkling believer, of a believer. Of a believer, yeah. Like let's say right, somebody right. comes to faith in a right. Presbyterian church. Yep. They're going to be baptized there out of obedience to the Lord, mm -hmm. and then they're going to be sprinkled at that church because that's simply how they do it. Mm -hmm. uh, we would we would consider that to be irregular, but a valid form of baptism. Right. That's what you're saying. Because because we don't want to get too tied up about the mode. We think the mode's important, but the most important thing there is that they were baptized as a believer, which we think is is I think biblically essential to a right understanding of baptism. Where I wouldn't go so far as to say that mode is essential. To a right, it's important, but it's not essential. So yes, talking about sprinkling of an a, of a believer uh, would be um, not something we would practice, but something we would accept. Any other questions? Yeah, Melissa. Might be kind of a silly question, but you know yeah. how sometimes people go on a trip, like to, yeah. to Israel, and they want to get baptized in the question, Jordan yeah. River. Mm -hmm. Like, would that be? It's not by the church. It's not a silly question. It's a great question, and I'm thankful that you asked it because I wanted to mention that earlier in the week as I was preparing, and I forgot about it, and you reminded me of it. Um, that again, I think is um, that I would I would say that we would accept that baptism. But it would be an irregular. I think. I think that, that when somebody gets baptized, like they're you know on a on a, a, a retreat trip with you know Young Life or some parachurch organization or on a trip to Israel, like you say, um, I I think that that undercuts a little bit what baptism is functioning as in the New Testament. It's an it's a, it's an act of the church. Um, so, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't quibble so much as to say that uh, that is an invalid baptism because in a sense there's Christians there they're testifying to this person's faith I think most principally baptism is functioning as entrance into the universal body of Christ but most normally and healthily is practiced in the context in the expression of the local church so we would accept it but we certainly wouldn't encourage it as a regular practice. Great question. Melinda. So then some of these things that are sort of irregular but acceptable, mm -hmm. is it weird to redo it? Um, no, it's not weird. That's a great question. Um, uh, <clears throat> yeah. No, it's, that's a really good question. Um, I don't think we should get in the practice of redoing baptisms um, just because they were irregular. And I don't like the word irregular, just not, not, not as biblically normal, okay? Because then I think it can lead us into a, a, a bit of a pursuit of an unhealthy sort of perfectionism in the ordinances, which I think can really be sort of unhealthy, um, which would get me a little bit towards that, I don't know why I'm pointing, pointing over here, I think because I was looking over here when I made this point, but it gets to that point of like then baptism becomes almost a marker of your sanctification rather than your rebirth. And so and the only time I would tell a person to be rebaptized is if they knew that when they were baptized, in air quotes, that they were not a Christian. 
then I would say then what happened to you, no matter the good intentions of the group of people that administered your baptism, air quotes at that time, was not really a baptism. It was maybe a well-intended thing by that group of believers at that time, but it wasn't biblical baptism. If you knew you weren't a believer, if you were sure of it, then let's be baptized for the first time now. But if you were a believer, I don't think you should repeat your baptism no matter how abnormal it was, because I think that undercuts it. Does that make sense? Great question. Great question. Any, yeah, Carolyn. Yes, I'm from India, but I was, I've got a passport. <laughs> I'm confused. I remember us having a, either a members meeting mm-hmm. or working on new statements Statement of, of faith. faith. Yep. Which we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks again. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And you were saying that going forward for membership, you wanted immersion. Yeah, Am I we wrong do. In well, that? right. Yeah, no. I think I think I don't. I think I was speaking. We have talked about it since as elders, and we think that it would be wise and generous to allow a believer who has been sprinkled. So that's a great question. Very savvy of you to pick up on that. I think I hinted at that. That was my own personal sort of musing in the moment to a question. Uh, so I'm sorry for that. that. That has caused understandable confusion on your part. Um, but yeah, we, we, would, we would accept and have accepted. Um, we have been accepting and we would accept um, sprinkling of a believer. Yeah, good question, Carolyn. And I want to qualify that of a believer. Yeah. Any other questions? John thought. John? You're looking good today. You're just looking good today. <laughs> so, <clears throat> baptism is also like entry into membership into the church. Uh, uh-huh. it, it becomes, or it could become a little tricky with... Can you get a little closer to the mic? I'm sorry. It could become a little tricky with really young members of it. Mm-hmm. Are young people that are baptized as far as membership. full membership yep. into the church yep. with yep. all the responsibilities yep. of a member yep. and so forth and so on. Great question. We've talked about that too. Uh, I don't think you're baptized into Never Never Land. I think you're baptized into the body. And so if somebody is baptized, let's say a 13-year-old is baptized at Crosspoint, I think they should be baptized into membership. Um, and, but I, we have determined that um, in order for you to be a voting member, you should go through the membership class and be 18 years old, but you have the rights and privileges, other than voting, of membership as, say, a young or teen baptized member of Crosspoint. Here's the difference, though, John, is that um, if you are 25 years old and you become a member of the church, you are now beholden to the congregation, to the members you are, you're submitting your life to them and their authority in your life. And so, like we read in Matthew chapter 18, if there's a church discipline situation, if there's unrepentant rebellion and sin, then the whole church would act on that adult's life through the process that Jesus has of one person going to them, witnesses, and the whole church. With a child, let's say a 13-year-old becomes a member of the church through baptism, uh, we, the, the process of they then as a 15-year-old, we found out that they were, you know, I don't know, I'm just 
just dealing drugs or just being a complete rebellious child and doing something egregiously sinful and unrepentant. We would, as a church, I think it would be wise realizing that there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of overlapping of spheres of authority in that stage of that person's life of the parents and the church where we would come alongside the parents and the process of discipline would be mediated through the parents, not exclusively through the church. As opposed to if a 25-year-old is in this church and they're doing something unrepentant and egregious sinful and their parents are part of this church, we may talk to their parents, but we're going to talk to that person directly. So the line of authority and submission is directly from the congregation to the believer. Whereas with a child member that's been baptized, that's under the age of 18, we're going we're to come alongside the parents and be very, very sort of, uh, in a sense, kind of take a, a co-laboring sort of uh, position with the parents. Does that make sense, John? But great question. And we hope that never happens, but it certainly is a possibility. Any other questions? Julie. I'm trying to formulate my question. Yeah. Um, so in relationship to church membership, mm-hmm. then, you know, we probably were not all born and, I mean, we weren't all born and raised into this local congregation. Almost none of us. So what do you do yeah. with, you know, we, we may be members of five different churches, but we're only getting baptized into one. Uh-huh. Or, you know, maybe we were baptized in the Jordan River and then church yeah. membership after that. So, like, how does that relate to church membership? And here we're not supposed to redo it. Yeah. But... I, I, I think that your baptism in a local church, even if it's in California or North Dakota, should only be done once. So even if you move to another local church, you don't need to be rebaptized. We just take your word that you've been baptized into the local church. Does that make sense? Does that, does that answer your question? I don't, I don't, yeah. Because then if we, it, it, it is, it is, so here, here's the deal, is that baptism is an expression of entrance into the universal body of Christ as it can only be expressed in the local body of Christ. But that doesn't need to be repeated. There's one, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It doesn't need to be repeated again every time you move from Corinth to Philippi to Galatia. I don't think, or from Columbus to, um, you know, Sacramento or wherever. I think there's a, and we trust somebody to be honest with us, if they've been baptized into the body of Christ, expressed through the local church, we take that valid. We, we accept that sort of team jersey, if that makes sense. Yeah, good question. Any other questions? Going once, going twice. Okay, a little heady, a little academic, but I hope this was helpful. Here's the point that I want to make before Robert comes up and leads us in, in either a prayer or a song, is that if you are a parent, um, we want you to be thinking about this with your children. We want to see children, young people, uh, appropriately baptized, and um, we want this little guide to be a real encouragement to kids and to parents. So hope this was helpful. Praise God.